You know, sometimes it's a blessing just to stop and pay attention to what's going on at church. And uh, it's a blessing to hear our Spanish singing through the wall back there. And uh, they're going to sing. They got a special song prepared for us during the candlelight evening service. And so uh, be in prayer for them. They ran a bus. We ran a bus. Uh, to Delano and picked up folks uh, for church this morning, a second bus. And so our our primary bus was here in town picking up folks. And uh, Brother Escobar came to me a couple of weeks ago and said, Pastor, I feel like God wants us to send a bus to Delano. I said, all right, be endowed with the Spirit and go. And uh, that doesn't actually happen. Um, But packed out back there, I think there's one or two empty seats. And uh, praise God for that. And uh, it is a joy to be on the same team. And uh, not in competition. We're, we're in competition with the, the, the clock, really. That's the only competition we've got. And uh, someday Jesus is going to come back and our labor will be no more. And so that's the only competition. And uh, someone said one time, he said, Pastor, what, what would we do if the Spanish church got bigger than the English church? We would rejoice. We would be glad that people are being saved and uh, that the kingdom of God is being built. And uh, that, is, that is just an awesome blessing. Miss Vallop here, she actually plays the piano for our Spanish church and uh, has really stepped into that role, and it's created an awesome opportunity for our church family to, uh, to, to exercise their gifts and serve and so forth, and so we've got a lot of bilingual folks back there as well, though I think some of you have been kicked out because there's not enough room, and uh, that is a blessing. It's good to be in church today. Would you go to Matthew chapter 1, and uh, we're going to continue our series this morning. You just pray for me, and uh, one of the benefits is I think I'll talk a little slower this morning. Um, I'm just nursing a bit of a cold in my voice, and and a brother Josh came up to me after service this morning and said, you did go slower in uh, 10 a.m. <clears throat> so I don't know if that's possible um, or registerable, but apparently it registered. Um, we're in a series. We started last week uh, entitled Not Hebrews, Josh, or Joe, not Hebrews. I need that slide up here. And uh, the series is entitled Merry Christmas with a question mark. And uh, that question mark is legitimate. Normally you don't see Um, that statement as a question. It's normally just an emphatic statement. Hey, an exclamatory statement. Hey, Merry Christmas, exclamation point. Um, But last week, we really developed the the need for that punctuation mark. Um, We look at the world around us and how little merriment they actually possess. And uh, we define the the, the word merry as to be cheerfully encouraged and uh, to have that just excitement and that courage to face what's in front of you. And the fact of the matter is, we look around in 2023 and most of of, uh, the world is just pretending to have cheerful encouragement, and uh, they don't have that joy of Christmas because they don't have the person of Christmas. They don't have the real root of Christmas. The, the root of merriment and cheerful encouragement in Christmas is not the holiday parties, and it's not the time off, and it's not the weather or the Christmas music, though all of those things are just a part of God's grace, right? And uh, how many of you enjoy eggnog? Wave at me, okay? How many of you don't enjoy eggnog? Man, we need, we need revival. And uh, uh, I don't know, how many of you enjoy gingerbread cookies, weirdos? Okay, all right, see, I can't fix you in everything, all right? Uh, I'll do my best with the Bible, but beyond that, it's outside of my scope and purview and above my pay grade. But either way, the merriment of Christmas is, is the person of Jesus. And it really should not surprise us, and I doubt that it does, the people in this room. It shouldn't surprise us when you replace Jesus or misplace Jesus in Christmas that you misplace and replace all the real joy. And uh, so you got to kind of pretend and fabricate it and, you know, create it with debt and create it with drunkenness and just find a way to be happy. But uh, the first century Christmas has something to teach us this morning in our 21st century kind of context. So what we've been doing, we started last week, we'll go this week and two more weeks into Christmas. Uh, We've been chasing down four individual secrets 
on how to have a Merry Christmas, how to actually enjoy the season. And so we've been looking at the first Christmas and watching these people and seeing that their circumstances, and we've only done it once, so you'll, I'm kind of speaking uh, a little bit of the, 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 the truth we're going to cover today. We're going to see, and we have seen just once, that their contexts are not entirely different than ours. Uh, like I said last week, there's different slavery and there's different bondage, but in much the same way, they've got some of the same fears and some of the same messiness. Um, their reality all that long ago is not all that different from ours. And so here's what we're hoping to do. Since their circumstances are similar to ours, what my hope and my prayer is that their reactions can be similar to ours. Really, the opposite is that our reactions will be similar to theirs. And what you're going to find as we look at the Christmas stories is a whole bunch of people who walk through a whole bunch of messy situations that very first Christmas, uh, and they were able to find the joy of Christmas. As Lincoln Orr once so infamously stated, Christmas gives us joy. And uh, that joy really can be had. How many know what I'm talking about? Okay, some of you don't. Okay, that's fine. You'll, you'll catch on to this someday. Ask him, ask him how Christmas brings us joy. Am I right, Carson? Christmas does bring us joy, and at least it ought to. Christmas should bring us to a place of encouraged cheerfulness. It ought to bring us to a place of genuine merriment. But here's what I want to do. I want you to open up your Bible to go to Matthew chapter number one, please, if you would. And I want to kind of show you something. We're going to read in Matthew 1 in a second. But if you make it to Matthew chapter 1, I want you to go back a page. And uh, if your Bible is similar to my Bible, at least in terms of the print, not necessarily the version, but the print right here, you're going to end up with a blank page. Now, how many of you have a blank page to the left of Matthew chapter 1? Let me, let me explain to you what that blank page represents. And some of you might know this and some of you don't. So bear with us uh, for those who don't. That blank page, it's just a page that the printer put in, whether it's Oxford or whoever prints your uh, particular Bible. Uh, but that page represents, at least in a small way, it represents 400 years of silence. The close of the Old Testament happens with Malachi and the close of the prophets. And God makes a handful of really beautiful promises about a final prophet coming and then the Messiah is going to come. But ultimately, what happens at the close of the, New, of the Old Testament is the children of Israel has just come out of Babylonian exile and they end up back in the promised land. And then you're going to find some of those minor prophets that are trying to instruct uh, the children of Israel. And ultimately, what you find is when they come out of exile back into the promised land, they're universally the same people that got exiled out of the promised land. They're, they're very unchanged. They're very proud and they're very materialistic and they're very hate-filled toward each other. And, and, and what happens is these people come out and they come out with all these promises intact that God is going to send them a Messiah and a, a savior, a shepherd king, a high priest. And they come out of this promise or they come out of this, uh, this exile. And then for 400 years, they sit in silence. For 400 years, God never sends them another prophet. Not a single line or word of divine inspired revelation. Not another visitation of God's spirit. Nothing happens on that blank page, as it were, uh, for 400 years. When they come, out of pro they come out of captivity and they come back into the promised land, they never get another preacher or another prophet. It's just silence for them. And what's powerful, this is the stage that's set for the opening of the New Testament. In all of this silence, this 400 years of silence, what you find when you open the New Testament now is that there is a small remnant of people waiting for those promises still. Some of them, in fact, it might not be wrong to say the vast majority of Israel has kind of just lost that hope. 
Now, they know the promises are still there, but nobody, it doesn't seem like very many people, at least at the opening of the New Testament, are still waiting for the promised one that Eve was promised, or that Abraham, as we saw in Sunday school, or that David was promised. But there are still those waiting. There's a woman named Anna at the temple who's waiting to see the hope of Israel. There's Simeon there waiting in the silence for the, 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 the Lord to come and step in and change things. And when that page turns from the Old Testament to the New Testament, God breaks more than silence. And I think this is really important, so pay, pay attention close. When that page turns and God visits the earth, he does more than just break the silence. He breaks the expectation of what the Jews were waiting for. He doesn't just send them a Messiah. He comes himself as the Messiah. Now, I don't even remotely mean to suggest that Israel shouldn't have known that it was God Almighty with them. There were plenty of prophecies in the Old Testament, though. Again, you even look at the apostles and their, their prophecies given, and they, they didn't understand it all the way. But when you think about the Old Testament understanding of God. The general understanding of God is that he was good, but that he's unapproachable. And that he's, he's untouchable. He's there and we're here, but then all at once, the suffering servant of Isaiah is actually manifest as their God stepping into humanity, as not just some, some son of David, but the true son of David, uh, God in flesh stepping into humanity. And Christmas is this beautiful picture of God coming as far as he could possibly come to rescue you and I. It is this beautiful picture of God stepping in gentle and lowly as a baby to come and be the sacrifice the Old Testament had promised. And so the Christmas story by its very existence exclaims, that man was so estranged, man was so lost, so unable to reach God, that he must come to them and redeem them to himself. No prophet could come and save us. No angel could come and reconcile us back. No mediator or high priest could offer enough blood to redeem mankind back to his original state. So what did God do? The Christmas story with exclamation points states that he came to us. When I could not go to where he was, he came to me, as the song says. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. Last week, we looked at Luke's gospel. This week, we're going to look at Matthew's record of the very first Christmas. And they're the only two uh, 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 gospels that record Christmas in, in the nativity sense. Um, but as you're turning there, or as you're waiting there, let me give you a bit of brief history uh, about the author. This story written before you, the gospel of Matthew, is written by Matthew. Matthew, as many of you will know, was a traitor to his own people. Israel at this time was a vassal state of Rome. And all that means is that they were under the power of another world power. And so it's this sad picture that Israel comes out of Babylonian captivity and essentially in very short order enters into Roman captivity. And they go from one oppression to another oppression. And this Roman state had so much power over them that what they would do is that they would recruit uh, shrewd Jewish people to collect taxes on their own people. That was the most hated position. Even Jesus himself uses it. Let him, let, us be, let him be treated as a heathen and a publican, tax collector. It is not a good thing to be a tax collector. Well, the author of this particular book is Matthew, who was one of those men who had given up his integrity, as it were, uh, to be a tax collector for this oppressive state of Rome. And it's amazing that Jesus looks to that man and he says, follow me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you along in this journey. You're going to join my team and reach the world with me. And it's, it's a crazy story if you really think about it. Look at the, just the 12 disciples, the, this, this ragtag group of people nobody would put together, not only because of who they were as individuals, 
but how far apart they would have been ideologically from each other. Think about Matthew and Simon the Zealot, right? Matthew is like the, the ultra left-leaning, whereas Simon the Zealot, zealots were like assassins. They, they wanted to overthrow both Jewish and Roman authority to set up the, the, the someday kingdom. It would almost be like having like the guy that stormed the Capitol and Bernie Sanders on the same softball team. It just... It is a strange concoction of disciples. And Jesus calls this group of men together and he calls, well, years later after the resurrection of Christ, the death and resurrection and ascension, Matthew writes this letter, but he writes it to the Jewish people, which is so unique that Matthew had such a love for the people who did not love him and, and for reasonable you know, understanding. And so with that in place, let's dive in and read what Matthew has to teach us about the nativity or the first Christmas story. Matthew chapter one, verse 18 is where we're gonna start. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they were come together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Now that is a packed, dense verse. There, there's a lot there and you've probably seen it, but let's look at it with fresh eyes for a second. You have this young woman that we met last week, Mary. She's about a teenager, and she is espoused or betrothed to Joseph, her husband. Now, in the American, and we'll pray in just a second, don't, don't worry about that, but in the American matrimony kind of structure, there's really only two stages. Um, in America, you go from engaged to married. That's pretty much it. And even engagement is a relatively soft thing. We probably all know, I know of a handful of folks who were engaged, and during their engagement, they decided, hey, this isn't it. You're you're not the one, and, and they, they break up, and other than maybe a little bit of an embarrassment, and maybe they were out the money for invitations, uh, the engagement was broke, and it was a fairly soft thing. But in a Jewish matrimonial system, it's very different, and you have to understand this to know where we're going with this. In the Jewish matrimonial system, it was three stages. The first stage would be engagement, and that would simply be where two people in a personal setting decide to become married. They, they, hey, it's like the will you marry me kind of engagement setting. Then there's a second stage that exists, and this would be the espousal or betrothal stage. This is where Joseph and Mary were. This, there is a civil legal process that culminates in a ceremony where two people are joined to legally be married. But what happens is the husband leaves and they don't come together. There's no consummation. Uh, the husband will leave for a year and you find this throughout the New Testament uh, and the Old Testament. He'll leave for a year and go prepare and build a home and, a, and, a, and make a situation ready for that wife. This is, this is the stage that Mary and Joseph are at. They've already gone through the ceremony. They're considered legally married. You'll find in this text that he's even called her husband, but they're a spouse. And so that's that second stage. And then that third and final stage, in the Jewish structure is the full consummation, the vows, the, the wedding night, the, the honeymoon, all of those things. So keep, keep that in mind. Look at verse number 18 again. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, we just explained what that means, before they came together. So this is very important. And I do want to be chaste, but I also don't want you, I don't want to underplay the significance of the theology that is happening right now. Uh, this woman has not been with her husband. Mary is a virgin. She has never known a man, as she says in Luke chapter number two. And so this, this young lady and this young man, they have honored God with their relationship. They have sexual purity between each other and with themselves. And don't listen to the History Channel junk, right? Don't ever listen the History Channel on Jesus or the Bible or anything. Uh, you, there'll be all kinds of specials this month during Christmas on the History Channel, debunking the virgin birth, how, you know, on Thursday under the moon, you know, the pollen was blown and that's how she had a child. It wasn't really a virgin. 
That's garbage. The Bible's very, very clear and uses rather descript language to explain to you and I that this young woman and this young man were virgins. They had not come together. I want you just a moment, as before we continue on, just to think about the moral society they lived in, the Roman Greco moral fabric, immorality all over the place. It wouldn't have been an abnormal thing for two people to come together. It would have been even less abnormal because they're engaged and they're already legally bound. They haven't come to their final consummation moment. But after all, listen, they're going to get married. Can't they just be together? Well, no, this is important to the story this morning. These two young Jewish people wanted to please their God. They were waiting for each other. They behaved honorably. And look up here. I, 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 I want to make a shift in your mind. I, wanna, I want your attention to shift this morning, not to Mary, but to Joseph. Now, very naturally, when we read this story, obviously, we focus primarily on Jesus. But then it's very natural to, to, to kind of think about Mary. Uh, but it's interesting to me, when you look at Matthew's Christmas story, uh, at least seems to me the primary focus of Matthew's Christmas story, aside from the baby, is actually Joseph. Think about this. Luke's account, he barely references Joseph. Barely at all. And it's all about Mary and the angel that visits her and the revelation that she has and the Holy Spirit overshadowing her and her going to her aunt's house or her cousin's house. It's all about Mary in Luke's gospel. Think about Matthew. Keep this in mind and, and proof text it with me as we go through. Look at when we read this story, see how little Mary's mentioned. It's really a focus on Joseph. So in your mind, I want you to kind of come away from Mary this morning. Our primary character that we're going to learn our secret from is actually Joseph. And think about Joseph for a second. He's gone through this espousal process as well. We know that Mary was dreaming and, and the testimony and all we heard about last week, but Joseph's in the same boat. He's been dreaming about this woman. He's been dreaming about his future. He's been waiting. In fact, as I mentioned, he's spending this whole year preparing his life for this woman. And with all that in mind, look again what it says. When the, before they came together, <clears throat> she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. So listen, Joseph is doing it right. Now, we can compare this with Luke's account. Um, we understand that, that he hasn't seen Mary for a while. Mary, after finding out that the Holy Spirit was going to overshadow her, we learn from Luke's gospel that Mary goes and spends time uh, with, uh, with, uh, with Elizabeth. But, jo but Joseph hasn't seen her for a while. And when she shows back up, the Bible uses the word found. Joseph discovers that she has a child. The word found means this, to discover by inquiry or search. I don't, I don't know how that happened. In heaven, maybe we'll get to hear that conversation. Joseph, what did she say? Mary, what did you say? How did you try to make him believe that some impossible non-human thing happened and that child is not some random guy you hooked up with. How did you make him believe that? Well, ultimately, you're going to find that Joseph doesn't believe her. But, but go back up top for a second. Let's gather what we do know. We know for the, at least the last three months of pregnancy, Joseph hasn't known. Mary has been with Elizabeth for at least three months and maybe, maybe longer. Maybe she waited a month and then went to be with Elizabeth. We don't know, but we know for at least the first trimester of this pregnancy, Joseph hasn't known. Check this out. No angel has come to Joseph yet to tell him what's coming. No special dream to warn him about it yet. I think the timing of God's revelation to Joseph is rather jarring, at least in my estimation. Uh, think about Mary last week, right? Before anything happens, an angel comes and says, hey, here's what's going to happen. Mary, I want you to know before you start feeling the cramps and before you start showing, I want you to know this is going to happen. And God could have 
done this for Joseph. Hey, Gabriel, after you stop at Mary's, go by Joseph and just let him know. Hey, I just stopped at Mary's, and I want you to know before anything comes out, before she has to tell you, God could have sent Gabriel the angel to tell Joseph. Hey, when you see her, she's going to go to her, she's going to go to her cousin's house, and then she's going to come back. It's going to be the first trimester's over. She's going to start showing. Hey, I just want you to know ahead of time. But God didn't do that for Joseph. And we believe that God does nothing by accident. It wasn't an oversight like God in heaven was like, oh, man, no one told Joseph? He didn't, he didn't just forget, right? I do that and you do that, but the great God of heaven doesn't do that. He didn't accidentally forget, but here's what he did. God strategically allowed Joseph to find her with child. That's a little uncomfortable, isn't it? He intentionally allows Joseph to go into and through this time of obscurity. He loves this girl. He has spent the last quarter of his year, at least, building a house and preparing a life for this girl. He, he wants to be with her. He has waited for her. And now she shows back up from her cousin's house and she has a baby. And the one thing he knows for sure is it's not his child. And he's heartbroken. And I don't mean to make this salacious. I, I mean this to be what it is. Joseph discovers by inquiry that his fiance has a child in her womb. And notice what happens. Look at verse 19. This is all very important to learning the secret Joseph wants to teach us. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. And we're going to come back and unpack this verse more in just a minute. But here's the immediate takeaway of verse number 19. Joseph does not believe her. Whatever story he told, she told him, Whatever, no, Joseph, please understand. And no doubt she did. We don't have any clue to this discovery by inquiry that Joseph makes. We don't know what she said or how she tried to prove it to him. I can take you to Elizabeth and Elizabeth will tell you. Uh, Elizabeth has a baby in her womb too, but we don't know what happens. But all we know is that he comes away as a just man and he does not believe her. I want to know what that conversation was, but either way, Joseph doesn't believe the conversation. Listen, and at this point in their marriage, the only way to break it is by a formal and legal divorce. Now, mind you, he still loves this young lady, but he desires to put her away. He doesn't want to make a public example of her. Why? Because he thinks she's pure? No, because he loves her and she was faithful to him, but I don't, I don't know exactly what happened and I don't know where she went wrong and I don't understand how this works. I just know that's my, not my child and I love her and I don't want to embarrass her, but she's going to embarrass me and ruin my testimony and I didn't do this and there's no way anybody's going to believe that's not my child. We've been engaged at least for three months. There's no way she shows back up in town and people don't think that's my kid. I'm going to put her away, but I'm going to do it in a just way. I'm going to be careful and loving toward my spouse in this situation. Listen, you and I know the story, but don't allow that to taint how raw this must have felt in the moment. God ordained this for Joseph. God allowed this obscure moment just for Joseph to grow his faith for his own soul, for his own development. And keep reading, and we're almost, we're almost through the introduction. We've got a long runway and then a fairly short message after we pray. Look at verse 20. It says, but while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream. He didn't come earlier. He came right on time, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. You know, this is not a part of the message, but something I noticed this year, and I try to read through the Christmas story every year. It's unique to me. In, in Luke, the, the angel tells Mary what Joseph, or what, who Jesus will be. He will be called the son of the highest, and, and he gives all these attributes. But for Joseph, did you notice what the angel told him? 
what he would do. Hey, Mary, here's who your son's going to be. Joseph, that boy is going to save the world from their sin. And it's a beautiful thing that Joseph is entrusted with its knowledge that this is the savior of humanity. This is the one come to save us from our sin. Look at verse 22. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And Joseph being raised from his sleep did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife. And notice verse 25. This will come back in play later and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son and call, and he called his name Jesus. So again, the focus of every Christmas story is absolutely unequivocally the baby Jesus. But these human characters, and again, Jesus was 100% human as well, but these solely human characters allow us to draw closer to that truth. It, it allows us to have a seat at the table as a human being, as a person who has experienced disappointment and confusion and so forth. It allows us a chance to relate to God in this context, and they teach us how to respond to God's great love. And so last week, we saw Mary teach us the secret of surrender. The secret of surrender is the way you and I can have a Merry Christmas. If we just realize, hey, God, be it unto me according to thy word. Uh, the, I'm the handmaiden of the Lord. You call me who I am. That's who I am. That's the secret we learned from Mary. This morning, I'll just tell you what the secret is up front. This morning, Joseph is going to teach us the secret of obedience as it relates to a Merry Christmas. And we'll pray and we'll get in. Father, would you guide us today? Thank you, Lord, for clarity and wisdom. Lord, I pray that you'd help us as we move through the text this morning. God, give us wisdom to understand how this relates to us. Give us wisdom, Lord, not to, to overemphasize performance, but also not to underemphasize the responsibility of unto good works. That, God, you have called us to observe the things that you command for us. And, Lord, we are going to see a powerful example of an obedient man a man who was doing what he should do before he was called to do something he never would have considered. And yet in all of it, he was obedient. He did what you said. He was faithful in the little and you entrusted him with much. And so God help us, Lord, to see some truths for our own life and heart this morning that we could draw out and, and just make application to us as well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You might say, well, what does obedience have to do with a Merry Christmas? Well, the answer would be quite a lot. It becomes clear to me and became more clear to me this week than ever before. In Matthew's hyper-focus on Joseph in his Christmas account, when you look at Luke's account of, uh, of, uh, of Mary, you find faith and surrender and tenderness and yieldedness. And when you look at Matthew's account of Joseph, those things are all very present. But one thing that it sticks out, at least to me, as I've read this story this week and seen some things I had not seen before, is what you're looking at is a picture, not just of Joseph, but of a man who was rooted in obedience a man who was doing what God called him to do in almost every sense of the word. He was being faithful to do what God had already asked him to do. Let me make a statement, and then we'll spend the rest of our short time trying to chase down and understand that statement a little bit better. Here's the statement. God chose this man, Joseph, to steward the infant Christ because he was an obedient man. Okay? God looked down and saw an obedient man and said, that's a man I can entrust with the responsibility of caring for both the infant child and his mother. Now, we're going to revisit our text one more time and, and chase down that idea of God choosing Joseph because he was already obedient. God didn't choose him so he would become obedient, but because he was already obedient. And that is the key to the whole text this morning. So I want you to see, I've only got two points, which is kind of a no-no when you write sermons and I don't really care. But number one, 
Joseph was a man obedient in his everyday. Now, that is going to come into a, a, a better definition and a bigger picture when we get to point number two. But we're going to start. It's almost like the first half of the second statement, right? And the first statement is that Joseph was a man who was obedient in his everyday. The first thing the text reveals to us, and you can just look there, in verse number 18, the very first character quality or attribute of Joseph we learned was that he and Mary were pure. They had not come together for a sexual relationship. And it's really summed up in the very next verse. Look at verse number 19. It says, then Joseph, her husband, being a, would you read it? Just man. Joseph is described by this word just. Let me give you the definition. I really do appreciate this definition. Living in accordance to what God requires. That's the man this Christmas story includes. When God looks down and says, I'm picking a couple, I'm going to pick a, man, a woman who, yes, will surrender and be the handmaiden of the Lord. But when I'm looking down at a man, what I need is a man who is just and living in accordance to what I've required. So when you look at Joseph, you find that he is holding up his end of the bargain in almost every single way. He's preparing his house. He's staying pure. Okay, God, you don't want me to sleep with my fiance? I won't. Okay, you want me to honor my vows? I will. You want me to stay faithful even when she's off with her cousin for three months? I will do that. Joseph is described as a just man. And all we're going to do for the first point is just look at how God describes him. And then there's a big moment that happens that you and I are going to look at. Joseph is described number two as a man with gentle discretion. It says that he's not willing to make her a public example. Boy, we need some of that back in our society, don't we, right? Someone hurts you and it's like, man, we're going to Facebook with this thing. We're going to go to the court of public opinion and I'm going to thrash that person. And Joseph could have. It's even suggested and, and, and reasonably so. Joseph could have had her stoned. We're still in the Old Testament. You, you cheat on your husband, you can be stoned for that. And Joseph doesn't want any of these things to happen to Mary. Uh, she's violate, apparently uh, violated these laws. Joseph could have asked a judge to hang her out to dry, public castigation, get even with her, but he chose to respond carefully, gently in his discretion. Joseph's also described as a careful man. I think it's in verse number 19, it says, and while he thought on these things, he's a man who doesn't just react and fly off the handle or you know, take what little information he can get and then make a life-altering decision. He is careful. He is searching for the best way forward. This is the man we see in this, in this, this story of, of Matthew 1. Joseph is an honorable man. I think this is important. We read it. I think it's verse 25 that it says that he knew her not until the child was born. They've already come together. And yet Joseph doesn't want to even remotely taint the possibility of someone saying, that's not a virgin birth. So Joseph says, hey, I respect you and I respect God and I respect this baby. And so listen, when you look at Joseph, here's what you're seeing. You're seeing a picture of a relatively simple young man who wakes up each day with a core devotion to his God and to do what's right. It's like he wakes up every day and says, what's the right decision today? How can I respond to the circumstances I find myself in in a God-honoring way? He's not reactionary. He doesn't, doesn't uh, in how he treats Mary, and he's not fleshly in, in, his, in his abstinence. And, uh, he, he's just a careful individual who's being obedient in the little things. And so here comes the message this morning. Like I said, it's only two points. The first one really is only in existence to bring us to the second one. Here's the second point. It's the everyday obedient faith of Joseph that positions him in a place where he has the courage to respond to this impossible ask God puts on his life. So I know that's kind of a, a, a packed statement. I'll say it in a couple different ways, but let me say it the first way. 
Joseph's everyday obedience in his justice, in his carefulness, in his discretion, in his, in his love toward Mary, in the person that he is and has been that positions him to be the man that God looks down and says, okay, I can now trust you with this giant ask. It wasn't like God just looked down and was like, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, uh, let me find a guy who's going to maybe step up to the moment. You know, uh, you, you hear of the idea of clutch in sports, right? Someone who you put the ball in their hand and just at the right moment, they'll respond. Well, most of the time, someone who's clutch is also very good at the normal sport as well. And what you're finding is that Joseph wasn't just a random guy that says, well, if I give him that task, he might, he might rise to the moment. No, no, no. Joseph lived risen to the moment. Joseph lived in obedience. Joseph was a just man walking in integrity and walking in carefulness. God didn't just decide to throw him some responsibility that he hadn't walked in a way that was already able to handle that kind of a moment. So God looked down and he found someone who was already faithful. God looked down and saw someone who was already obedient in purity and in justice, someone who is already taking care of his bride, someone who is already treating her correctly, someone who is already doing what was right. So another way to state point number two is that Joseph's everyday walk was why God trusted him for this massive responsibility of raising the Messiah, of taking care of Jesus. It's Joseph's everyday obedience that caused him to even have the courage to say yes. Think about the ask he just got, he just received. Hey, Joseph, marry the girl. Ruin your testimony. Raise the son of God and bring into the world the savior. Your parents, Joseph, will not believe that's not your child. Or if they do, they'll think you're marrying an adulterer. Her her parents probably won't believe you. No, 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 that's not my kid, I promise. You're You're the most likely suspect, Joseph. The stigma will never go away. When Jesus is a full-grown man, the Pharisees come to him and say, at least we weren't born of fornication. Joseph and Mary would walk through that the rest of their lives. Think about what God called Joseph to do. He could only call him because of who he was already being, his faithfulness in the everyday. But think about this. We only read about Joseph four times. Four times. Once when the angel comes to tell him, hey, marry that girl. Second, when Christ is brought and dedicated uh, at the synagogue. The third time we see him is when God calls Joseph to protect that child and bring Jesus down to Egypt because Herod's killing the babies. And the fourth time we see him is when Jesus is 12 years old and becoming a man and he gets left at the temple. You know the story, perhaps. He gets left at the temple and Joseph comes back and Jesus says this, what? Know ye not that I must be about my father's business. It's almost this handoff moment where Joseph is done with his responsibilities. Jesus is now moving into that stage. So think about what God called him to do. Hey, Joseph, bring this child up safely. Take care of him. Bring him to me at the temple. And then I relieve you of duty. Now, there's a lot of conjecture about what happened to Joseph. We know we don't see Joseph past Jesus' teenage years. We certainly don't see him in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of conjecture that he perhaps had died, and that's probably the case. But here's the big picture. God tells Joseph, here's the call on Joseph's life. Hey, are you ready, Joseph? Hey, don't be afraid. Take her to wife. Ruin your testimony. Keep that boy safe. Give him back to me, and then move out of the way. Because it's not about you. You're his stepdad. You won't even be in the picture for the rest of the story. 
Joseph is called into this massive responsibility of obscurity. To be a stepdad to the Messiah, right? You talk about a blended family, right? Every sibling Jesus had was a half-brother or sister. And Joseph gets to be the stepdad for a season and then gets moved out of the way. And here's what Joseph says. Okay, I'll do it. Just like he said when God said, hey, I want you to be pure. Okay, I'll do it. Hey, I I want you to take care of this woman. Okay, I'll do it. And the okay, I'll do it. Everyday obedience and faith-filledness, he's he's the man that God looks down and says, I can trust him for that job. I can give him the responsibility to bring my son into adulthood. Listen, you realize God didn't pick Mary and Joseph by accident. He chose a man and a woman to honor him who were already honoring him. He didn't give this massive honor and responsibility to someone who was neglecting their duty. He gave it to people who were already doing their duty, who were already devoted to him, who already had a heart toward him. They could steward a miracle moment because they were stewarding the regular moments of life. That's going to be our big takeaway this morning. Every person in this room who loves Jesus to any measure of degree would want to say, maybe you have never, but you would, you would agree with the statement. God, I want to do more for your glory. Every person in this room who loves Jesus to any measure would be able to state, make that statement. God, I want to do more for your glory. But let me ask you, can he trust you right now with what he's already called you to? Are you being the just man in the everyday moments that God can look down and say, now I've got something more for them. I've got something more difficult for them. I've got some greater responsibility for them. And are you being entrusted with what he already gave you before you can move on to some greater responsibility? Again, let's bring this to home as a church. God, take me to Africa to win the world. Did you even pass out a track this week? God, I want so much more, but I'm not being faithful in my everyday obedience. And when I look at Joseph, that's the word I find. When I read that story and man, he's over here prepping a house and then he knows what the law says and he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to dishonor his, his God with a testimony of marrying a woman who was unfaithful. In every step you find Joseph trying to figure out, God, what's the right choice? God, what do you want me to do? You want me to marry the girl? You don't want me to marry the girl? I'll throw it all the way or I'll take it all. Whatever you want for me to do. Wait, every parent in here say, God, give me a child that can love you with all their heart. I'll, I'll give them back to you. And then we're not faithful to bring them to the house of God. We expect some great thing to come out of our life and God to entrust us with some great responsibility. Joseph was able to be trusted because even before you meet Joseph in the nativity, you find Joseph faithful in his every day. We cannot expect, listen, extraordinary faith to obey in extraordinary ways when we are not even stewarding ordinary faith in ordinary ways. I hope you catch that. We cannot expect to just, I'm a, you know, when God calls me, I'm going to rise to the moment. Not if you're not being faithful in the every moment. I'm going to have extraordinary faith. When I get on the you know, plane to go to Africa, are you having ordinary faith every Saturday or Sunday or every weekday in your workplace? Are you being faithful in the small to be faithful in the much? Joseph and Mary were ordinary people who were faithful to each other and faithful to God and faithful to do what's right. And it's because of that faithful obedience, faith-filled obedience, that God entrusts them with the very kingdom of heaven. 
his cousin, John the Baptist, is going to shout, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here, it's him. They were entrusted with that great responsibility. Now listen, excuse me, uh, we will not be called to steward the infant Christ. We, we have not, rather, been called to steward the infant Christ. But we are called to steward the light of Jesus and the truth of Jesus Christ. And those who are faithful in ordinary ways are, 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 and ha, are, will have the courage to be faithful when God calls them to do something even greater. So secret number one we saw last week from Mary. A truly merry Christmas is only found in a surrender to God's will. Well, secret number two from the life of Joseph, a truly merry Christmas. How in the world, Joseph, it's all falling apart. How in the world can you go to bed with peace in your heart, knowing you're going to marry this girl and this child's going to come? How could you do it? Well, because he was simply obedient to do what God said to do. He didn't know all the work out and he didn't know how it was going to all be. He was simply obedient. Let me say this as I close. I want to make sure that we understand. I want to back clean up for a second on my own message. I am in no way advocating for a performance system that somehow makes us acceptable to God. That, hey, listen, if, you're, if you'll do a lot of good things, you're somehow accepted before God. No, let me say this. Even Joseph, in all of his piety, in his moral purity, in all of his careful discretion toward his wife, in all of his, his goodness and the word just ascribed to him, in all of that, you remember what the angel told him? That this child was coming, in verse 21, for she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people. You don't get any more his people than his own earthly parents. You don't get any more his people than Joseph and Mary. He will save his people from their sins. You see, Jesus is the way you and I are made righteous. Jesus is the only way Joseph, in all his goodness, was still not enough. Yet in his obedience, God said, I can entrust you with more. But listen, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus on two good works. We're not saved by good works. You and I could work our way every day of our life and still die and go to hell. Joseph, in all of his faithfulness to his wife, and all of his faithfulness to the law, in all of his obedience to moral purity, would still die and split hell wide open. That baby needed to come because he was going to be the way that men would be saved from their sins. So again, please understand me. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you need to know Jesus or you'll die in your sin. If you're here today and you do know Jesus, then understand this. He desires that you walk in holiness. He desires that you walk in obedience. And his grace is what will supernaturally enable you. We're not talking about, well, the more I do, the more he loves me. No, he's going to love you regardless. But his desire for you is that you can accomplish more. And that you'll be faithful in the little and he'll make you ruler over much. And then that, that much feels little. And so he calls you to something greater and even beyond. And that's what you find in Joseph. You just find a man doing his job. Obeying the Bible. Obeying what God has called him to. Being faithful to his, his spouse. Uh, she doesn't seem to be, but now God says she was. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take the fall. I'm going to marry the girl. And I'm going to raise the boy. And then I'm going to step out. I'm going to play whatever role God gives me. But he had faithful in the little, and God gave him responsibility over much. I don't know how that fits to your story today. I am done. I don't know how that fits to your story today. I don't know. You might, again, you might be the person that says, God, I want to do something great. Then do something ordinary. Be a good husband. Be a good wife. Be a faithful church member. Faithfully tithe. Faithfully serve in your church. And when God looks down and says, hey, I've got a, I've got a, a, a position to fill. I see that person's faithfulness. I'm going to move them in that direction. That's exactly what you find with Joseph. You don't find God looking at the bench saying, well, that guy's awake. I'll call him. No, someone attentive and faithful doing what they're supposed to. God says, I can trust that person to raise my son. Let's pray.